So I was sat down with a bit of bread and a piece of cheese on Friday. I was waiting for the one o'clock news to start, so I I quite often watch the news with my lunch. But it wasn't quite one o'clock yet, and so I decided that I would endure a few moments of bargain hunt. Man, that is a terrible programme, isn't it? Oh, dear me, it does my head in. The, the idea of the show, for, for the, uh, the, the blissful people who have not ever had to endure it, the idea of the show, it seems, is that a couple of teams, they kind of peruse an antique fair somewhere, they buy some, some antiques or some collectibles, something like that, which they then try to sell at auction for a profit, although it appears it's more common for them to make a loss. Um, which struck me as being a bit surprising because helping them to choose which items to buy is a so-called expert, right? Who surely must know that the Chinese vase that the contestants have picked out and just want to pay 150 quid for is actually not from the Ming dynasty and really worth 10 grand. It was actually from Woolworths in the 1970s and it costs about pound fifty. But they don't say anything, do they? They don't say anything until the piece gets to auction and its true value is discovered. They pretend not to be worried, of course, but you can see the disappointment on their face, can't you? As, as what they thought was the genuine article is exposed as being something without value at all. And what I'm thinking is, surely the expert helper could have told you that. So why does he encourage your misunderstanding instead of telling you the truth? Why does he play along with your delusion instead of setting you straight? I guess we'd all agree, wouldn't we, that it's better to know the truth about something than to be deluded. So surely they should be setting these poor contestants straight. I guess the reason is it makes better telly, doesn't it, to leave them in their delusion for a while, uh, no, no real harm done, I suppose. But what about in the spiritual realm? What about when it's a matter of eternal importance? What if someone believes that they're one of God's people when in fact they're not? What do you do? Do you encourage their misunderstanding? Do you play along with their delusion? Do you let them find out when it's too late? Or do you expose the fact that someone's faith is fake? Do you seek to set them straight? What do you do? I I think it's this kind of situation that Jesus is facing here in in John 8. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we we looked at chapter 7, uh, you'll remember that Jesus is at the Feast of Booths uh, in, in Jerusalem. And he's there amidst great confusion about uh, who he is. Um, you remember that? He, he's been teaching them, of course, plenty about who he is. And, and he's been exposing the, the, the sinful motivations of those in the religious establishment who are rejecting him. But even as he's doing that, all the while he's continuing to offer them life in him as well, isn't he? If anyone thirsts, he says, let him come to me and drink. But, but the people's responses are, are divided aren't they? Some hate him, others love him. Some grumble about him, others trust him. Some desert him, others follow him. He's, he's dividing opinion. And, and what we've got here in chapter 8 uh, is a continuation 
of his discussions with the Jews at the Feast of Booths. That may not immediately be apparent to you because there is this chunk of text, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8, um, which we didn't read, and, and, and which has the note above it in your, in your Bibles to, to the effect to say that these manuscripts are not included in, in the earliest manuscripts. Indeed, uh, that's true. The, the overwhelming evidence that is that although the event that they describe is, is uh, most likely a real event, it's almost certainly not part of John's writing. It was, it was added into a few manuscripts kind of uh, later on by the scribes who were copying them down. So, so all the evidence points to, to these not being part of John's gospel. And so therefore the right place to begin chapter 8 is at verse 12, which we can see actually preserves the, the, the flow of the narrative. You'll notice that John writes, verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them. In, in other words, he's, he's continuing his, his dialogue, both, both with the Jews who were rejecting him, the, the religious authorities, and also, from verse 31 onwards, with the Jews who said that they believed in him. And, and as Jesus then continues the, the dialogue with them, we'll see him not only explaining to them again who he is, but we'll also see him exposing the people's fake faith. And actually giving a devastating assessment of people who think that they're God's people, but who Jesus says are not. So let's have a look. First of all, verses 12 to 30, where Jesus again explains who he is. And you'll notice the section begins in verse 12 with Jesus issuing an invitation. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's an invitation, isn't it? To come to him. And it's not the first invitation, actually, that he's given at this Feast of Booths, is it? If you remember that the feast included um, a water pouring ceremony, a ceremony where, where the high priest would, would enter the temple. He, he would be carrying a big flagon of water that was drawn from the pool of, of Siloam. He would pour it out before the Lord uh, at the altar. And as he did so, the people gathered would be looking back and, and remembering God's uh, rescue of them in the past, his provision of water from the rock in the desert, uh, if you remember. And they would also be looking forward as well to God's promised rescue to come. The, the messianic age, when God would pour out his spirit, something that was variously described in, in the Old Testament, using the imagery of a, a river of water that flows out and, and brings blessing to others. And so in the middle of this water-pouring ceremony that's looking back and looking forward, Jesus calls out, chapter 7, verse 37, "'If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me.'" As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do, do, do you see? In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that this festival is all about. I'm the promised one who, who will provide the outpouring of God's spirit that, that will, that will uh, be like this river of living water in the hearts of those who believe. So, so come to me and drink. Right? Believe in me and have life. That's some invitation, wasn't it? And, and, of course, loaded with, with messianic significance. And now, at this point in the feast, Jesus issues this other invitation in verse 12, only he's using a different metaphor this time. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And, and as we think about this uh, invitation, we, we need to realize that the image of light was another of the great symbols of the Feast of Booths. Um, at, at, the, at the climax of the feast, there would be four large bowls filled with oil that they were set alight in the temple courts. And people would celebrate and, and dance. They'd hold burning torches late into the night. And again, the ceremony seemed to point back, point the people back to God's rescue of them in the past, leading them to freedom uh, through the, the pillar of light or the pillar of fire. But also it was pointing them forward, it seems, to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, 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 the, the prophets uh, like Isaiah describe uh, this coming Messiah as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That's from Isaiah 42. And so it's into that kind of context that Jesus says in verse 12 here, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, I'm the Messiah. The messianic light that the Old Testament looked forward to. So therefore, just as your fathers followed the pillar of light in the desert, so you need to follow me. So that you won't be walking in darkness, but you'll be walking in the light that leads to life. That's stunning, isn't it? And of course, it's a, it's, it's a claim to who he is. And it's an invitation, isn't it, to, to follow him. And, and so have life. Um, but of course, verse uh, 13, the, um, the religious leaders, as we've <laughs> come to expect by now, they don't, they don't like it very much. You're, you're bearing witness about yourself, Jesus, verse 13. You're, 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 Jesus, you're appearing as your own witness, and, and you can't do that. It makes your claims invalid. We've only got your word for it, which of course is rubbish, isn't it? These religious leaders, if you've been with us through John, they've seen a stack of evidence, haven't they, to back up who, what Jesus has said. But what they're doing, and, and they've done it before, is applying the, the legal principle that they had, that, that a witness was no good when he was simply a witness to himself. And actually, Jesus had agreed with them about that back in chapter 5. But here he's kind of making a different point, taking a different tack. Uh, Look at his reply um, in verse 14. Uh, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. So, So his point here is his testimony is true, it is valid, he is qualified to bear witness about himself, And he tells them why, and it's because he knows where he's from and where he's going, whereas they don't. Do do, do you see that? Jesus is the one who knows that he's come from the Father on on a rescue mission. He's going to the Father. He's returning to the Father when when his mission is complete. Do you see? He's the one who knows where he's from. He knows where he's going, but they don't have a clue about that. Hence, all they can do, verse 15, is judge him by merely kind of human, worldly standards, which is what he means by according to the flesh. In other words, they're the ones that have got no right to speak because they're ignorant of Jesus. Whereas Jesus speaks as one who has come from the Father, one who's returning to the Father. And so his testimony is based on understanding, not based on ignorance, do you see? 
And in any case, verse 16, it's not just his testimony about himself, but rather his testimony comes with God the Father's backing. Jesus and the Father speak as one. Do you see that, verse 16? My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In other words, we are one. And so what I speak, he speaks. My my testimony comes with his authority. I, I speak for him, do you see? And therefore, verse 17, your law that says, you know, you, you should only believe the testimony of two witnesses, not, not just one. Well, I pass the test, <laughs> verse 18. There are two witnesses because I'm not just bearing witness about myself. My father bears the same witness about me, two witnesses. Well, Jesus, um, he accused these religious leaders of, of judging him, didn't he, in a, in, a, in a very worldly, just merely human way. And, and he was right, wasn't he? He's been talking about his, his divine relationship that he has with God the Father. But they just don't get it at all, do they? Verse 19. So where is your father then? It, it just shows up their ignorance, doesn't it, of, of who he is. And, and actually worse than that, by not recognizing who Jesus is, they've shown up the fact that they don't really know God the Father either. Uh, end of verse 19. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Do, do, do you see what he's doing? He's, he's, both, um, he's explaining who he is, whilst at the same time he's exposing the fact that these religious people are, are ignorant about him. They're unable to make anything other than a worldly assessment of him, exposing the fact that they've got no real relationship with him at all. Do you see? He is the light of the world. They really are in the darkness. So it's quite blunt from Jesus, isn't it, at this point? And and the Jews, they're clearly stirred up by it because John suggests, look, verse 20, that really the only reason they didn't arrest him was that God hadn't allowed it yet. So Jesus carries on, verse 21, with with more explanation of who he is and and more exposure uh, of their darkness. Have a look at verse uh, 21. So he said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So, So he's told them already that they don't know him and they don't know the father. And now he says that he'll go away. That's back to the father in heaven. And that this is a place where they can't follow, they can't get to. Again, verse 22, they're a bit puzzled by what he says. So Jesus explains to them why they can't get there. Uh, Have a look at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. In other words, even though you are religious leaders, you are of the world. You, You don't know God. And what that means, he says, verse 24, is that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In other words, you'll face God on the day of judgment unforgiven unless you believe that I am he. By, By which Jesus definitely means that he is who he claims to be. He's the Messiah. He's the the promised rescuer from God. He's the light of the world. But actually, Jesus is going farther than that here, isn't he, I I think? Uh, Do you remember from the other week, 
um, uh, we, we saw that the, uh, in the Old Testament, the description, I am, was the name for himself that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Do you remember that? And, and John here, he records Jesus taking the same name for God and applying it to himself. In fact, he does it several times, multiple times in, in John's gospel. So what, what verse 24 literally says is, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. You see, it's another claim on Jesus' part, isn't it? To, to not only be from the Father, not only going back to the Father and speaking on behalf of the Father, but actually to be one with the Father, to be co-equal with the Father. He's saying, I am the Lord God of Israel, who revealed himself to your forefathers with, with these exact words. And you religious leaders, you need to believe in me and follow me to the Father. Or die in your sins unforgiven. He's not pulling his punches, is he? But they still don't get it. That they still haven't grasped that when he talks about his father, he's talking about God. Uh, verse 27. And, and so Jesus spells it out to them even more. Look in, in verse, uh, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man... Then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So again, Jesus uh, applies God's, God's personal name to himself. He calls himself I am, and he also gives to himself the name Son of Man. Did you see that? That's another Old Testament title. It's used in the, in the book of Daniel to refer to God's God's Messiah, the one who will come with God's authority to, to judge and to, and to rule uh, the people. This is who I am, Jesus is saying. And when you Pharisees have, when you've lifted me up, that means on the cross, then you will know that I am. In, in other words, my death, my, my resurrection, that will be the final proof of who I am. Friends, do you, do you see what Jesus is, is telling us here? He's telling us who he is. That he's from the Father, he's returning to the Father, he's speaking for the Father, he's one with the Father. And so because of who he is, he can say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But friends, even as, he, even as he tells us who he is, he's giving a devastating assessment of these uh, Jews in front of him, isn't he? Who think that they are God's people, but show by their response to him that they belong to this world and can only make worldly judgments about him and are in fact not really God's people at all. Indeed, what they're in need of is to believe in Jesus, to see him for who he is, to follow him to the Father, so that they might not die in their sins but have life in him. And friends, it begs the question, doesn't it? What, what about you? See, there, there, there were people here who, who heard this message as, as unbelievers. And by the time Jesus had finished in verse 30, were confessing to be believers and you know, if it happened for them, it can happen for you and, and for me. So will you believe in him? 
Will you accept him for who he is? Will you let him lead you out of darkness and into the light of life in him? Will you do that? Well, as he was saying these things, verse 30 tells us, many believed in him. And, and, and so it's to these people that Jesus now turns in, in verse 31. And what he's doing here, uh, kind of 31 to the, the end of the, the chapter, is, is not so much now explaining who he is, but he's, he's rather exposing their fake faith, as, as I think we'll, we'll see. So have a look at verse 31, where he begins by telling them what real faith, uh, what real faith is. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So a true disciple of Jesus is someone who abides in Jesus' word or or his teaching. Now that's pretty obvious, isn't it, when you you, you think about it. The word disciple means a a learner, um, and a learner needs a teacher. Um, Hence, a, a disciple of Jesus must be someone who follows Jesus' teaching. That's, that's not rocket science, really, is it? But isn't it amazing how many people call themselves Christians, but in reality are not followers of Jesus' teaching? That, which, of course, is the, the teaching of the Bible. Uh, sure, they, might, they may well be religious people. They, they might be church attenders. They might be church leaders. Um, but the Jesus they profess to follow is not the Jesus who reveals himself in the Bible. It's another Jesus, another Jesus they've, they've made up to, to suit themselves. And, and Jesus' point to, to these Jews here, who say they believe, is to remind them of what real faith in Jesus actually means. And it means we abide in what Jesus teaches. And the word abide there, it means we, we persevere in it. We, we keep holding to, to what Jesus says in, in the long term. And you know, we seek to order our lives in, in accordance with it. So, so the real Christian, the genuine article, is not simply someone who hears Jesus' teaching and says, yeah, I, I believe in him. But that's where it starts, but it's, it's not where it finishes. That the genuine disciple is someone who abides in it. Somebody who holds to Jesus' teaching and continues in it. And that means, friends, even when it's not politically correct to do so. Or even when it's deeply uncomfortable to do so, as it is here. Of course, that doesn't mean that we'll always get it right, does it? We'll fail. We'll fail many times. But when we do, we'll confess that failing to God. We'll be reassured of his grace because of Christ. And so we'll continue as disciples of the Lord Jesus. And and what does this abiding in Jesus' teaching result in? Verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So to be a, a genuine disciple, one who abides in Jesus' teaching, is to know the truth that sets you free. And that's because, of course, Jesus is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. So to abide in Jesus' teaching is to know the truth, that the, the truth about who God is, the truth about who, who we are in relation to him, the, the truth about life and eternity and salvation, the truth about what we're here for, and, and, and so on. In other words, to, to hold on to my word, Jesus says, results in freedom. 
That, that's not freedom to do whatever you want, of course. That's not freedom. Actually, that's slavery, is, which is what we'll see in a minute. But it's freedom to be who we were created to be. Freedom to live as God intends us to live. That's true freedom. So, so to, to these people who've heard Jesus' teaching and say that they believe in him, Jesus explains what genuine faith is and what it results in, which is freedom. And so the, the kind of the question that's begging here is, well, are these believers genuine then? Well, look at how they respond to, to Jesus' teaching. Verse uh, 33, they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? They're a bit put out, really, aren't they? <laughs> if, if, if Jesus is saying that, that only in him is their freedom, well, he's implying they must be slaves. But they're saying, hey, we're the offspring of Abraham. We're, we're the inheritors of all God's covenant promises and blessings. We're, we're God's chosen people. You know, we might have been political slaves at, at, at various times to the Egyptians or the, the, you know, the Babylonians, the Romans, but we've never been spiritual slaves to, to anyone. Do you see? Already these believers are challenging Jesus' teaching, aren't they? Well, look, Jesus explains some more to them in verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In other words, they are all slaves because it's slavery to sin that Jesus has in mind and everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And I want us to notice here, friends, that in using the word everyone there, he's not just saying that these Jews are slaves to sins. He's saying that everyone, the whole of humanity, is a slave to sin, including us, friends, for we all have sinned. We've, we've all, haven't we, at one time or another, lived our lives for ourselves and therefore ignored the God who made us and rules us, thus sinning against him. And Jesus says that to be someone who commits sin, which we're all guilty of, is actually to be a slave to sin. In other words, sin has got such a grip on us that it's our master. Sin rules us. That's our condition, whether it's money, whether it's possessions, whether it's power, whether it's sex, whether it's lifestyle. We choose to do what we want rather than what God wants. We might think that that's freedom, you know, freedom to do what we choose. But actually, Jesus says, no, that's slavery. It's slavery to a sinful nature that rules us such that we are slaves to it. But the good news is that Jesus can set you free from that slavery. In, in verse 35, look, he, he makes the point that a slave is not part of the family. But a son, well, a son is permanently a part of it. So, verse 36, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And, of course, Jesus is the eternal son, isn't he, who's, who's always had a place in God's family who's been given the authority to release those who are in, in slavery to sin, something that he can do because he was lifted up. He was lifted up on the cross in our place to, to, to grant us freedom if we'll just believe in him. Friend, if, if you're a Christian here this morning, will you give thanks that he has set you free from your slavery to sin? 
And he set you free, not to carry on living for yourself, but to live for Christ as you were truly intended to live. Will you rejoice in that? And and friend, if you're not yet a Christian this morning, will you see that according to Jesus, your position is not one of freedom. It's actually one of slavery to sin. But a slavery that God desires to liberate you from as you simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, look, Jesus, uh, Jesus continues to expose fake faith in, in the next few verses as well by exposing their true spiritual family. Abraham is our father, they insist, verse 39. In other words, we're God's covenant people. We've got one father, even God, verse 41. Well, Jesus, he, he looks into their hearts and he doesn't agree. Look at the, um, the end of verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Do you, do you see the point? You, you, you show whose family you're in by your behavior, by, by behaving the way your father behaved. So although you might be the physical offspring of Abraham, you can't be the spiritual offspring. You can't be in God's family because you want to kill me. If God were your father, verse 42, you'd love me because I've come from God. I've I've been sent from God, but you can't even bear my word, verse 43. No, what you do is what your spiritual father does. And he, get this, in verse 44, he is the devil. And your will is to do his desires. That's a staggering thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? He he looks into the hearts of these deeply religious people who think that they are God's people, who think that God is their father, and he says they don't belong to God. They belong to the devil. And that's shown up by their response to Jesus. And friends, again, it just... It begs the question, doesn't it, for us? What does your response to Jesus tell you about whose family you belong to? Have you been set free from your sin? Or are you still in slavery to it? Do you love to hear his word? Or or have you got no room for it? Do you love Jesus? Or actually, would you rather he was just out of the way? If if Jesus was looking into your heart this morning, who would he say your spiritual father is? So how how do these Jews react to Jesus' teaching? Many have said, verse 30, they believed in him. But what does their response to his teaching show? Well, Jesus has exposed them, hasn't he? He's exposed their faith as fake faith. He's exposed them as having the devil as their spiritual father. And in verse 48, they effectively accuse him of the same, of being a Samaritan with a demon. Did did, did, did you spot that? And and the Jews despise the Samaritans, of course. Um, So so to be called a Samaritan with a demon was hardly a compliment. (laughs) Um, But look, Jesus sticks to his guns, verse 49. He insists that it's not him that's from the devil, it's them. And that is plain to see, verse 49, because Jesus is the one who honors God. Whereas they do not honor God because they dishonor Jesus. 
But friends, notice that even as he's sticking to his guns here, even as he's exposing their phony faith, he still keeps holding out life to them. Did did you see that? Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever keeps my word will never see death. Of course, they're thinking, well, that just proves that he's demon-possessed. How can he say that whoever keeps his word will never see death? Surely Abraham kept God's word, and yet he died, verse 52, and then, of course, there's the prophet. Surely they kept God's word and, and they died. So, so who does Jesus think he is to be able to save people from death? Um, verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? Who do you think you are? Well, of course, Jesus, Jesus is not saying that those who believe in him will, will never have to face the, the death of the body. Of course, we, we'll all face that unless Christ returns first. But what Jesus is talking about here is what happens then? You know, he's, he's already said, hasn't he, back at the end of chapter 6, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I, I will raise him up on the last day. This is, the, this is where the true Christian is heading. If, if we keep his word rather than reject his word, like, like, like they're doing, Jesus promises to take us through death and into eternal life with him. Now, these Jews, they're mortified. That Jesus should have the audacity to claim that he can save them from death. Just who do you make yourself out to be, they say. (laughs) Well, Jesus tells them. Verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. In other words, he's saying, I'm God's son. His father is their God. And unlike them, he says, I know him. I obey his word. And and check this out, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. And and there it is again. He's taking God's personal name from the Old Testament and he's applying it to himself. And, and, and that may or, or may not be massively clear to us, depends on how well you understand that Old Testament imagery that Jesus is using here. But these Jews, they knew their Old Testaments. They knew full well that Jesus was claiming to be God here. Hence, verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. This is, this is blasphemy. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. Friends, Jesus' teaching in this chapter is shocking, isn't it? He's addressing God's historic people, people who believe that they were in God's family, religious people. And he's exposing the fact that their refusal to accept Jesus as God's Messiah shows up the fact that they are not, in fact, God's children, but the devils. That those who initially profess to be believers end up rejecting Jesus because they just won't accept that without him they are slaves to sin and that only Jesus can set them free. He exposes their faith as spurious, as as phony, as fake. So friends, what about us this morning? Do we understand that regardless of how good or how religious we might be, we are slaves to sin unless Jesus sets us free. Do, do, do we humbly acknowledge 
that, that in our sinful nature, we are children of the devil, not children of God. And that only through Jesus can our status be changed. Friends, I know that's deeply uncomfortable. But do we accept it? Do we believe that this is true such that we throw ourselves on Jesus and him alone to save us? Because, friends, if we don't, we are not abiding in his teaching. And we may need to ask ourselves some questions about whether we're truly his disciples. This is deeply challenging teaching from Jesus here. But, friends, it is deeply hope filled teaching from him as well isn't it because this morning he unmistakably says to each of us if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free let's pray about that together shall we father please help us Help us to respond to the teaching of your word, not with dismissal, but with humble recognition of who Jesus is and what genuine faith in him means. Please would you cause us to examine our own faith in the light of what Jesus says and so abide in his word, that word which sets us free. And we pray this in Jesus' name.